0: Hi, everyone. Eric here. Very quickly, before we get to our discussion today with Daisy Kambandu in Lusaka, I want to make sure that you know about the daily email newsletter that Kobus and I put together. What we're doing with this newsletter is capturing the conversations that are taking place about China-Africa relations, whether it's the latest reports from think tanks, scholarly research, what activists are saying, and of course, all of the discussions that are taking place on social media and we're featuring a lot of primary source material. So if you're a researcher, an analyst, or a journalist covering these issues, this newsletter is perfect for you. To find out more, go to chinaafricaproject.com subscribe. Give it a try, free for two weeks. See if you like it. And if you use the promo code podcast at checkout, well, we'll give you a big discount. Also, if you're a student or teacher, it's always half price. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from sub-China. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we're going to focus on Zambia today, and in particular, talking about agriculture, but we really have to put this inside a broader context. Zambia is facing a number of different challenges uh, that are quite severe. One by themselves would be really critical, but now we're facing a myriad of problems in Zambia, not just the COVID-19 outbreak that is affecting the entire continent, also the accompanying economic downturn that is putting pressure on people's lives. But Zambia, like a lot of Southern African countries, is also facing climate change impacts as well. Uh, Most notably, and again, interestingly here, both flood and drought at the same time. Uh, According to a 2019-2020 UN humanitarian response plan for Zambia, 2.3 million Zambians are going to need food aid before the next harvest, and it says that about 450,000 of those people require immediate food assistance. Uh, This has been compounded this year by severe flash floods that have now impacted 1.1 million Zambians, and the UN World Food Program is now starting to direct aid and relief uh, to those people. And then, so put on top of this, all of the all of these floods, the drought, COVID, the economic disruption, we also have a debt crisis. About eleven point two billion dollars in eurobond debt and direct debt to bilateral lenders uh, is also prompting a lot more money to be directed to debt servicing and away from agriculture and public health programs. So, put all of that together. There are a lot of challenges on Zambia's food security, and that's really, I think, an acute concern, Kobus.
2: Yes, it also sits in a wider context um, where a lot of a lot of development plans coming out of sub-Saharan Africa really puts agriculture and agri-processing at the centre of African future development plans. You know, it's it's seen as a kind of more ecological um, and more sustainable um, alternative to resource extraction. So the, all of these questions around food security that that is that moment are plaguing um, national governments. Also sit in wider continental plans for, for how food can also be
0: used for development in Africa. So it's this kind of complicated, like double situation. So Zambia, like a lot of African countries, imports its food, a lot of its food, is unable to feed itself entirely, especially now, again, during some of these crises. So we've got to start thinking about uh, what's going to happen in the post-COVID-19 era. Will some of these food imports resume? Will the countries be able to afford, have the hard currency to buy food? And in that case, it's going to start putting pressure on stakeholders in Zambia to start creating solutions of their own. One of the solutions is actually taking place in the China-Africa space, and it's these things called agricultural training and development centers. Now, this goes back to 2006 and the FOCAC summit that was run by, at that time, Uh, former president, Hu Jintao, and they launched these kind of demonstration centers, which was the idea was to bring private and public stakeholders together to come up with agricultural solutions in a very, I guess it's interesting for me because it's a PPP, a public-private partnership, and we don't usually associate that with Chinese development aid, but in this case, it's quite prominent across Africa, little known, they're operating in more than a dozen countries across the continent. It's been a topic we've been focusing on all year, And we're going to talk about today what the ATDC is doing in Zambia, especially in the larger context of these acute challenges that are facing that. So to help us understand what's going on, we're thrilled to have on the show today for the first time, Daisy Kambandu, who is the country program manager for the ATDC program in Zambia. A very good morning to you, Daisy. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Morning, Eric. Morning, Kobus.
0: We set up the fact that in our discussion that the situation is quite dire now in some parts of Zambia. Food security is an issue. Talk to us a little bit about the role that the ATDC is playing in terms of this context of helping to train small-scale and local farmers to be more self-sufficient and possibly mitigate some of these challenges that Zambia is facing.
3: Yeah, so the vision of the ATDC is to provide basically what you've mentioned, food security and Um, technology transfer for particularly smallholder farmers in the broader context of uh, looking at specific uh, value chains and those value chains that have potential for growth and have potential to increase income for smallholder farmers. So the ATDC's role is basically to provide a platform and a learning space for those smallholder farmers to introduce new farming techniques Um, and new technologies that they can then adopt on their own farms. Uh, So as a a learning space, the the ATDC then becomes a place where those technologies are demonstrated, um, are also piloted in very specific areas in the country, Uh, and then farmers are able to either learn on the demo sites at the ATDC or at the pilot sites, and be able to transfer that information, um, using local materials, uh, you know, local information, uh, onto, onto their own farms. So at the moment we're doing that, uh, with the village chicken, uh, um, but the idea is to scale it up to other value chains as well.
2: So, which which partners are involved um, in with you know kind of within the country and then internationally?
3: Um, so, at the moment, uh, it, and giving the broader context of Zambia's challenges, and also uh, prior to um, the the challenges where we were seeing economic success and graduated into a um, uh, you know a middle income, a low middle income uh, country. Um, Zambia began to see fewer development agencies working in countries. So there was a significant reduction, especially from uh, European agencies to work uh, specifically in Zambia. So that's why China became um, a particularly important partner. And that's why the ATDC became uh, very interesting in that it wasn't just looking at the agricultural space, but it was looking at a broader uh partnership with other Chinese entities. So at the moment, uh, to answer your question, uh, at the moment, the the direct partnership is between the University of Zambia, who's considered the local partner and the owner of the ATDC, and uh, Jilin Agricultural University, um, which is, uh, you know, the the Chinese partner. um, And at the moment, we have the two directors uh, from both of those universities. Currently, we're they're working in partnership with uh, Syngenta. Syngenta has just agreed to set up a, a demonstration site. Uh, for its uh, one of its um, maize protective products, as well as horticulture, and the idea is to bring on board additional uh, international partners, particularly Chinese partners. Uh, just uh, seeing, hoping to see that partnership and the relationship grow between China and uh, and Zambia.
0: Who is Syngenta? Explain Syngenta to us.
3: Syngenta is a agro inputs company. Um, And they are also, they uh, recently were bought out um, by a Chinese entity. Uh, So they are also a a Chinese company. So they basically provide uh, various different inputs to um, the farming community. And this includes the seed, it includes fertilizer, it also includes uh, protective products. Um, And they are one of the, the larger uh, input supply companies in the, in the country.
0: So this is a very different approach to agricultural assistance than I think. And again, I'm speculating here than what, say, the United States Agency for International Development or some of the European aid agencies do. Because from my understanding, and again, I might be completely wrong here, they don't have that corporate partner as part of it. How is this different than, say, what what the others have done?
3: So the idea is um, is to have the ATDC ha- um, have a specific revenue base where it's able to generate income on its own, and then also have uh, different development partners come on board to implement di- uh, different projects. So, for instance, the the project that that we're currently implementing is um, being funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So what we're actually doing um, is to help capacitate the the centre to be able to function sustainably and independently. Mm -hmm. So under the, the ATDC project specifically, we're looking at Um, incorporating different protocols and incorporating different uh, activities and systems and procedures within the ATDC so that they're able to transfer uh, that technology onto smallholder farmers Um, and whichever technology it it might be uh, and whichever value chain.
2: So you mentioned um, earlier that, that the current project is focusing on chickens. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that particular one.
3: Yeah, sure. So when we were starting the, the project, um, we looked at the, the landscape in Zambia and we looked at the particular interest of the ATDC um, and in particular, like I mentioned, value chains which had the potential for growth and a significant number of smallholder farmers, as well as their um, potential to uh, generate income from um, being involved in the value chain. So a number of different value chains were were studied and the village chicken came out as being the the most significant out of those those three indicators. Um, So on, on the project, we are setting up a village chicken demonstration site at the ATDC, and that site is looking at various different housing, uh, as well as looking at um, disease protection, feeding um, regimes, um, as, as well as uh, you know, disease prevention, uh, and, the, and looking at uh, different breeds as well for, for the village chicken to see which ones would actually work best in the Zambian environment. And uh, in addition to that, we're piloting um, the, the same concept in Luansha District, where we're, we'll be working with approximately 2,000 farmers to actually um, set up the, the village chicken value chain from production all the way to um, seeing it on the, the retail shelf. So we have the the farmers producing um, the the village chicken and linking them to a processor, and that processor is then making the product available uh, in the in in the supermarkets. And this is something that hasn't happened uh, in the village chicken space before. So we're seeing uh, we're piloting it to see if it'll work, and then uh, hoping to bring on additional partners that would then take that pilot to scale so that, you know, you're able to see it in some of the larger supermarkets, because at the moment it's it's just in um, some of the, the smaller supermarkets. But within that, we're looking at very specific technologies that basically transform the village chicken production from a nine-month um, time time period or maturation rate to three months. So that's looking at the feeding, that's looking at disease prevention, it's looking at um, how you're brooding the birds, and et cetera.
0: It's interesting how commercially focused it is. When you think of aid programs, and this has been one of the long-standing criticisms of AIDS, that it creates a certain level of dependency. And it seems like, just from the way you're describing it, that this is meant to be commercially viable and sustainable on its own without having to be dependent on, uh, say, foreign aid or the Chinese support, you know, 10, 15 years down the road. Is Is that something that is new in the aid business or are the Chinese distinctive in their approach or are other aid agencies also doing something similar from what you can see in Zambia?
3: So it's it is a little bit different from the aid agencies but it is something that uh we're seeing more in Zambia. Uh even with uh, with U- US aid and even with some of the the European aid agencies they're looking towards sustainability and they're looking towards um making sure that uh they don't have to come back again and provide the the same services. Uh, So a lot of a lot of the programs that uh, we work in as an organization looks at um, private sector development as well as entrepreneurship and as well as ensuring that farmers are generating uh, sustainable income from the activities that that they are uh, that they're doing. So it isn't something new uh, to. Uh, or, or specific to the Chinese, it, but it is a newer concept um, within within aid agencies, and I think it's the generally the direction that um, aid agencies are going, at least here in Zambia. Um, and and so far, we're seeing we have been seeing some successes. Um, obviously, there there are challenges when working with smallholder farmers, but uh, it is uh, it is a much more sustainable approach. As opposed to the traditional way of providing aid, uh, but as you know, um, you know, change uh, it takes time, and um, more traditional uh, aid agencies and more traditional NGOs um, find it a little bit a little bit hard to to make that transition. Um, but but we've seen uh, so far we've seen quite good successes and uh, we think that it is the way that uh, that development agencies will be going in the future
2: um, what is the thinking around the scaling of the project is is, is it at the moment um, is there uh, you know the possibility that it might start you know you know feeding into cross-border trade to take advantage of the the continental free trade agreement or is it is the planning at the moment mostly regional or national
3: so, at the moment, um, more because of uh, production limitations, we're looking a little bit more n- uh, national. Um, as you, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but basically, um, Zambia does consume a large number of chickens, and the broiler market, uh, there was a significant reduction in the broiler chicken market which has um, allowed for the village chicken market to to increase. Uh, And part of the reason why there was a reduction in the the broiler chicken market was because of the the, the cost of feed, which basically um, goes back to what you were talking about in the introduction, where the the crop production wasn't as good. And so the price of soybeans went up, the price of maize went up and everything else um, increased as a result. So it, essentially, the, the village chicken value chain was able to take advantage of that. But because of the reduction in the broiler and production limitations on the village chicken at the moment, we're still seeing a national um, demand gap where um, essentially if we're thinking about scaling it, we're still thinking uh, nationally before, uh, before we would think regionally. Although um, markets like the Congo market are particularly interesting for smallholder farmers because they're able to uh, to make significant profits from, uh, you know, from the sale of, of one or two birds. But obviously, if you're thinking about volumes, then um, the, the margins then uh, reduce, which is basically what we're trying to convince the, the farmers of at the moment. So the
0: ATDCs, as I mentioned earlier, started in 2006 under President Hu Jintao. And then in Zambia, if I'm correct, your ATDC opened in 2016. Is that right?
3: The ATDC was completed in about 2010. And from about that time to about 2015, it was primarily being run um, by Jiao, or Jilin Agriculture University, where they were doing um, a number of research activities, and they were doing um, a few training activities. But in terms of um, actually reaching out and um, doing uh, activities uh, to scale with smallholder farmers, That only started with uh, the onboarding of the Bill & Melinda Gates Foundation project, which I'm uh, currently working on. Uh, And that uh, essentially started in about 2016 with the study and then uh, implementation started about a year later.
0: So one of the things that we've heard from a number of different stakeholders who are involved in ATDCs in other parts of Africa is that there's been a learning curve for the Chinese. This is relatively new for them, unlike, say, the US or Europe, who've had decades and decades of aid experience, and there's a a whole industry that's there to support uh, this this sector. The Chinese don't have that, and they're learning. Talk to us a little bit about some of the the, the challenges in terms of working with the Chinese and, and the, you know, the cultural language, some of the different issues that you've confronted as these ATDCs have ramped up in places like Zambia?
3: Um, it has definitely been a learning curve and it is a newer concept in, for the Chinese in uh, providing aid. Um, you know, they're also uh, a little bit more used to providing the infrastructure and, and, and moving on from there. So working specifically on on projects and uh interacting with the with the local population to provide aid in the traditional sense that we think about it is very new and also very culturally different uh so it has there there has been significant learnings and um at the, and, and obviously, cultural differences in how we engage um, as as different people from you know Zambians to the Chinese and vice versa. So, in terms of in terms of the challenges, I would say definitely language um, has been a challenge. Although at the moment, um, I would say out of the all the technicians that we have at the ATDC, I think only one doesn't speak English at the moment. Um, so we do have. Uh, we were fortunate enough to to get Chinese staff that uh, do know English and are able to interact with uh, with the locals um, and the being be, uh, finding the the right engagement and finding staff that is is much more personable and uh, is is willing to Uh, understand the the local context and understand the the local environment as well so that has that has been a significant learning I think particularly from from about 2016 um, when when we started implementing the the project Uh, and just being able to to go out and understand uh, the cultural differences on both sides. Uh, so there has been that uh, that learning curve, and there, you know, the cha- there are still challenges, obviously, um, but but I think we are moving in a trajectory that is that is generally positive. And the the good thing is that both institutions want to see that the ATDC succeed, so they are willing to uh, to go through the hurdles and are willing to to learn and. Uh, see how other aid agencies have have interacted, and I think the the foundation has been has been key to this uh, in establishing their their office in China as well and providing um, you know indirect guidance on how on um, on how um, development is is implemented at a local level.
2: In, so in my space, uh, you know, as as a kind of a think tank person, um, I'm frequently in, in meetings about future African development initiatives. And the this idea that there should be triangular cooperation between China, Africa, and a third northern partner is is very hip at the moment in, in, in these circles. And, you know, kind of there, there's a lot of discussion of it, of it, but almost always in terms of future potential for collaboration. Um, you know, so it's, it's quite rare, actually, at the i think to see to see an initiative where a western partner like bill and melinda gates foundation and a chinese partner are working together in africa um, to the extent that you can discuss it um, you know how has that co- cooperation worked on the ground
3: um, i think it has it has worked um, like i mentioned it obviously every single new partnership has its has its own challenges but but it is something that uh, that has the potential to to continue to to work, um, and there's and as I mentioned, there is that um, there is a desire from all partners to to see uh, to see this partnership uh, continue to grow and continue to to work, uh, and the, the the good thing is that most of the implementation is left to the local partners to be able to figure things out on their on their own. Um, and so we're, we're basically uh, involved in, in making sure that, uh, that we're able to implement and having a good relationship with, uh, with each of the partners uh, also helps and being a facilitator between the, the partnerships and also being a, um, being a sounding board and uh, providing the, the local guidance. Um, so, in a nutshell, it is something that uh, that does have the the potential to to work in the future, um, but I think also like like has been like like you've mentioned, uh, China is also is going generally in providing aid is going through uh, through a learning curve, and I think um, the the northern um, development agencies and uh, you know American European uh, donors also went through. It's, Learning curve it's just that they have had fifty years of learning um, so so i think it's it's a similar you know there would be a similar learning for for the chinese to to go through as well so at some point i'm i'm pretty certain that there there won't even be need for uh, for the northern partnership and there are other places where there's um, interaction between uh, directly between um, a Chinese institution and uh, a local institution. And they're able to to implement activities uh, without a third partner. This has
0: been a very difficult time in China-Zambia relations over the past few weeks. In addition to uh, the, the, the situation that happened in Guangzhou back in April, where there are widespread reports of maltreatment and discrimination against Africans, that got people very upset in Zambia and other African countries. We've also had a series of Of of, of very high profile showdowns between Lusaka Mayor Miles Sampa, who has gone down to Chinese owned restaurants, a barbershop, and a Chinese factory and posted on social media him shutting them down, allegations of discrimination. And then, of course, there was the awful murder of three Chinese uh, nationals who were uh, robbed and murdered in Lusaka as well. And so it's been a difficult time. And I'm wondering if. Your work in a Chinese joint venture project like the ATDC—do some of these negative externalities in the broader relationship find their way into the ATDC, or are you able to kind of wall yourself off from the bigger geopolitical and cultural issues that are some, influencing the China Zambia relationship?
3: Um, I mean, we we do see the the news, and we do see, and we understand, you know, the the, the tensions. But uh, generally speaking, I think between the, the two partners, they have reached a stage where there's mutual understanding and mutual respect that, um, that doesn't really, you know, we we're able to basically wall ourselves off from, from what is happening externally. Uh, although, you know, we obviously do see what, what is happening. And, um, and like I mentioned earlier, there is, there's that positivity to want to see the ATDC succeed from both sides. Uh, the University of Zambia sees it as an opportunity to really grow, um, its research arm at a more adaptable level. So at the moment, a lot of the research that is done uh, within the walls of the University of Zambia stay within the University of Zambia and doesn't get translated down to, to farmer to farmer level. So this is an opportunity for, for that ad, uh, adaptive research to get to farmers, where farmers are able to actually use those technologies. And then for Jilin for Agricultural University, it's an opportunity for, for them to either get international students, which is always a plus for a university, um, as well as um, a place where they're able to go and do research outside of, of China in, in a different environment. Um, and so generally speaking, they see the ATDCs as, as an opportunity to, for, for the universities to grow. Um, and then as a place where they, you know, can generate additional income and to, to be able to, to see, um, you know, a- additional revenue and to do additional activities, um, which ultimately translates to them being able to, to implement more projects.
2: How do you see the, the project pre- proceeding from now on over, say, the next two years, five years, ten years?
3: Our implementation, we have basically reached a stage where um, our facilitation role is now really just facilitation. We've, in terms of implementation, we've um, provided as much guidance and as much, um, you know, the the documents and everything that we're uh, we were able to to do on the program, and so now it is up to the the two institutions to take what we have uh, provided to them, you know, um, strategic plans, business plans, um, you know, procedures, protocols, etc., and be able to, to implement them and having a staffing structure that would allow them to use um, what we have provided to them, but then also to be able to grow from there. So it is still a, a bit of a balance at the moment. Uh, and we are still in, involved in uh, providing that facilitation role. But there is significant potential for it to, to succeed and be able to actually um, do activities on their own and to uh, get funding from other donor agencies to implement a diff- uh, additional uh, programs on their own. So, so yeah, so I think there, it does have potential uh, obviously, at the moment, it is operating in a, in a relatively negative environment um, economically uh, at, at country level, at macro level, but uh, as, a, as an institution and as other uh, development agencies and donor agencies are looking for institutions um, that are solid enough, that have a firm foundation to work with, um, I think it is going in the direction of being a, a very good development partner uh, with enough reach to, to uh, see uh, impact on the ground with smallholder farmers, uh, which is what uh, development agencies want to, want to see
0: a nice positive story for a change on the China Africa relationship we've been in a, a a a series of negative kind of things so daisy it's been wonderful to hear your uh, your optimism about the future for for this program and how important it is particularly given the timing Uh, Daisy Kambandu is the country program manager for the Agricultural Technology Demonstration Training Center, or ATDC, in the Chonghui district in Lusaka. Uh, Daisy, if people want to find out more about what you're doing at the ATDC in Lusaka, is there a website or is there Twitter? Is there any way that people can find information about it?
3: At the moment, there isn't, um, but we will will be sending that out uh, very soon, actually. Um, But at the moment, we've been very strategic. Oh, you got to tell
0: the story. Public <laughs> diplomacy, <laughs> yes. marketing. This is really important. Yes, <laughs> and there's
3: there's a reason for that. We've been very very deliberate about how and when we want to start advertising to the world. Um, okay. So so at the moment there isn't a website, but there will be soon, and I will share that I will share that with you when it's when it's out. Uh, we didn't want to share it too soon because the ATDC wasn't in a wasn't at a place where it can start advertising itself because the systems weren't in place and i didn't want uh, i felt that we, it might give it a negative light um and and people wouldn't take it as seriously but we've made significant um improvements and actually this year is when we'll be launching um, the the website and launching uh, you know whatever the social media um yes
0: Well, as soon as it comes out, please do share it with us. And we will, of course, share it with the audience. Uh, Daisy Kabandu, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and explain all the great work that you're doing. We really appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Kobish, throughout the discussion with Daisy, I'm thinking to myself as a professional communicator, like this is one of China's best success stories in Africa. It's really remarkable. And in so many ways, it challenges some of the the hostile narratives against the Chinese about that it's state-led. Oftentimes, the United States and Europe talk about public-private partnerships, but we don't always see a lot of that actually executed on the ground. Here, we're actually seeing things happen. This is not kind of at the state-to-state level, but it's actually at the civil society level, working with small-scale farmers, putting chickens into grocery stores, helping with food security. I mean, the talking points from a propaganda and a public diplomacy messaging point of view – are just genius, I mean, they're great. And we don't hear anything about it. And it's really, I don't know, I mean, I'm just, it's just my observation, but it just seems like such a missed opportunity on the Chinese side to really tell a positive story, rather than so often we hear the Chinese are positioning themselves against the West, so what they call the West and that people are not giving them the credit and whatnot. But here they have an opportunity to tell a, a, an engaging story that uh, no one really knows about. You and I have been covering the China-Africa story for 10 years, and we're new to this. I mean, it's buried. I understand why Daisy doesn't have a website because her specific project uh, is not ready for it. But why this, the bigger ATDC initiative in Africa isn't communicated more effectively, just, I don't know, just feels like a missed opportunity to me.
2: Yeah, I mean the same is true for health initiatives as well, because obviously China leads on on anti-malaria, um, you know, kind of measures in Africa. So there's a there's a lot to explore there. Um, I I assume that You know, there's maybe two two issues. One is just, you know, you know, different kind different agencies and the different ministries and so on, not particularly kind of speaking to each other, you know, that might be one thing. And then it might also be that that everything at the moment is just in this kind of inflamed space between the US and China. And it's very difficult to talk about positive, uh, you know, triangular cooperation initiatives and
0: so on, you know, in a space where the governments themselves are so hostile. And I think strategic communications has never really been seen as a priority. In not just the Chinese aid industry, which is still relatively new, but the aid industry as a whole, uh, it, it's always been this kind of thing that if you do good, you should be recognized for it. Now that's changed a little bit over the past five to ten years, particularly with the big ones like the, you know, International Rescue Committee, Doctors Without Borders. They've obviously do a huge push when it comes to to marketing and strategic communications. But a lot of smaller NGOs are are they just don't do it, and they don't know how to do it, and they don't fund it. And it's not a priority. So it's not surprising that they don't have it. But you see a lot of what they're doing here is very visual. So the idea of working with farmers, putting, you know, growing chickens, doing, bringing Chinese agriculture over seeds, you can have a great story on that. But again, I'm thinking as a visual storyteller, as a journalist, and as a professional communicator. Uh, But it does, again, it just seems like a missed opportunity. One of the things we didn't get to, and I would have liked to have had the chance to speak with her about it, is the fact that every single time we talk about China-Africa agricultural initiatives like the ATDCs, the issue of land grabs comes up. And it's something that we're going to post this show up on LinkedIn and on Twitter and Facebook. And invariably in the comments, it's going to be China's out to land grab. Why does that happen every single time?
2: I think it has to do a lot with, um, you, know, with, with uh, you know anxieties that comes from Africa's past. You know, kind of Africa has had a lot of experiences of land grabs, um, you know, by external actors um, going back hundreds of years. So I think I think that it's it's part of that. It's it's also part of um, you know, I think a narrative that that China is is looking internationally, in particular to Africa, to to produce food that it would then import, which we've seen um, the work of the of Bra- Brautigam notably um, have shown that that actually that there, there aren't as many land grabs as or, or many at all you know kind of um, and also that this this narrative of China is going to grow food in Africa for China doesn't actually make sense you know kind of that that, that kind of value chain does you know kind of it, it's, it's true for certain products like coffee or oranges from South Africa but it's not sustainable for lettuces and you know kind of other kinds of things that that, that chinese consumers want um there it's it's much more much easier to do it closer to home so there isn't a, a kind of a narrative set up for china's involved in producing things that will then be sold in africa um you know that that narrative is, is a is a more alien one um, and, and the other one seems to make more sense i think
0: yes in fact uh Africa is terribly positioned to feed a country like China simply because it doesn't have the large industrial scale agricultural output that say Brazil, Argentina, Australia, Europe and the United States have. China sources its food from those places because it can produce the the huge quantities that it needs. I mean remember this is a country of 1.3-1.4 billion people. Africa for the most part still has small scale landholders. So it is it's just it's those are not aligned as as you pointed out. So anytime people bring up the idea that China is going to turn to Africa for food production, uh, it just it it reveals the ignorance of that statement simply because the scale of what China needs is so much larger than what Africa can actually produce. That being said, we recently did an interview with uh, Ben Igbakpa, who is the Congress or representative in Nigeria, and our colleague Ovigwe Ego Ego spoke with him. And at the end of the interview, he was inviting. Chinese agricultural companies to invest in Nigeria. And so there does seem to be this willingness to do partnerships both on the investment level and at the ATDCs on the part of African stakeholders to engage the Chinese on agricultural development. And it's one of those parts of the story, again, that we don't see as much... Uh, you know talked about and and I find that I found that very interesting that in Nigeria They wanted to try and bring in and develop the agricultural sector with both Chinese investment and technology
2: Yeah, because the Nigerians are trying to get away from oil um, as, a, as a central central pillar for for their economy um, And when when African leaders talk about develop developing agri-processing for for development This is what they mean. They want to be the new Argentina or the new Brazil um, You know that that kind of like large-scale um, Agriculture for export is what they're aiming at um the, the the question though is that um both in the US um and in South America we've seen that that kind of agriculture, the, the kind of paving over you know over many, many small farms and over local ecosystems to produce a, a monoculture to just you know kind of like you know um, twenty square kilometers of soybeans, for example, has been environmentally and socially ruinous. Um is a really, really terrible kind of way of, of, of producing food. Um and so the challenge I think in Africa is to, to do it without wrecking the ecosystems and without, you know, kind of ex- essentially pushing many, many small-scale farmers off the land and therefore making them kind of move to cities that aren't capacitated to, to deal with them. Um, so they're, they're looking for ways to try and kind of keep smallholders on the, on the land and then to get everyone together to kind of produce these kind of large-scale, you know, like agricult- exportable agricultural commodities. The question is how that is supposed to work. and And I think... They're actually international... International assistance is valuable, but it's also limited because, in a lot of cases, both China and the U.S. and South America provide negative examples, you know, of how not to do it, how not, you know, kind of how not to keep people on the land, or how not to to wreck, um, you know, how not to keep ecosystems safe, um, and you know, so so in that sense, a lot of a lot of local knowledge and local wisdom in Africa will have to be, you know,
0: kind of drawn into the equation. I'm wondering if in your Think tank circles people are talking about the emerging decoupling of the United States and China and the impact on agriculture in part because the United States is one of the largest suppliers of food to China in terms of soy pork Uh, citrus, beef, you name it. The United States sells a lot. But one of the things that we've seen come out of the US-China trade war is that Chinese buying of American agriculture is going down. The Chinese don't seem that excited about living up to their commitments in the phase one trade agreement that committed to buy vast amounts of soybean and other products. They're now shifting a lot of those purchases to uh, Brazil and Argentina and Australia and other places. Uh, One of the, the discussions I had shortly before I left Shanghai uh, last year was with a scholar at a think tank there who said, uh, yeah, we're going to stop buying as quickly as possible everything from the United States. That is our goal as well. So the the decoupling is happening happening on both ends of the equation. And I'm wondering if there is any thought in Africa to try and take advantage of this. Is there an opportunity to to, to raise pork or to grow soybeans in such a way that it can make up for some of the gap because uh, the rest of the world simply cannot produce enough to compete with the Americans or to make up for the American loss. So this seems to me as an opportunity for African farmers to help step in and fill the void if they could produce uh, for, for export.
2: There's a mix of opportunities and dangers. On on the one hand, I think the opportunities definitely are there, and and I think some, especially countries like South Africa, where where large scale agriculture is already a, a you know kind of a strong system, to try and take advantage of those, um, you know, kind of within within the limits that they can do, because you know there, there's for example a limit to the amount of soybeans that South Africa can produce. But yes, I, I think there's already there's already a, a, a push to try and take advantage of that. However, there's also the danger that as producers like the US lose the China market, they start l- looking around for other markets. And South Africa has already had several trade disputes with the US around dumping issues, particularly around chicken. Um, and so, you know, so so there's been that, South Africa already battle-scarred from dealing with the US in very hard trade negotiations around these issues. Um, and so there is, there is I think, also fears in Africa that these kinds of pro- pro- projects could simply have the legs cut out from under them by, by cheap Imports kind of like being arriving unmasked from the US or from Brazil. South South Africa had similar fights with Brazil as well. So you know, so I think there are worries, both worries and opportunities.
0: Well, it's interesting you bring up that point because Kenya is about to sign a free trade agreement with the United States, and that could, of course, open the way up for American agriculture to find its way into uh, to Kenyan stores, which, again, would be good for Kenyan consumers because it could be cheap, but it would also put per- pressure on Kenyan uh, producers as well. Two very quick points before we go. Keep an eye out for what's going on in the fish sector. It's looking like because of the disruptions to global trade that fish supplies, frozen tilapia fish in particular, coming from China have been reduced Uh, countries from Senegal to Kenya are talking about boosting the domestic fish industry. So that part of the agricultural supply chain is something interesting to watch. The other one is you mentioned South Africa. I also want to point out Egypt as well is a major citrus producer and they have been seeing their volumes go up considerably in part because people are buying more citrus because of their want to boost their immune systems. And one of their biggest markets has been in East Asia. I know from going to the supermarket here in Vietnam, I am seeing Egyptian orange and grapefruits everywhere, and that's kind of exciting. So, e- Asia as an export market for African citrus is something very exciting. We have not seen much in the way of progress when it comes to avocados coming out of Europe. They uh, out of Kenya, excuse me. They need to be flash frozen, and that has been the big stumbling block of entering into the China market. But at the same time, it's something that I think a lot of people have a lot of hope and optimism that one day we'll start to see a lot more uh, Kenyan avocados make it into the China market frozen uh, at the point of export. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We're going to continue our discussion in agriculture uh, throughout the rest of the year and going forward. We also have a lot of great material on our website at chinaafricaproject.com. Again, this is one of the aspects of the China-Africa relationship that people don't know as much about. It's very, very interesting, very complicated. There are a lot of cultural differences, business differences and whatnot, uh, but people are working through it. And it's really one of the more exciting, upbeat, stories that we have. And Lord knows right now we need a few of those. So uh, I'm happy to be able to, to finally bring uh, an optimistic, uplifting story to, to the discussion. So that'll do it. We'll be back again next week with another episode. For Kobus Venstatten, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening.
1: The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project. To share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.